Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by William J. Hahn. Will is counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which recently represented the Little Sisters of the Poor, Our Lady of the Guadalupe School, and St. James Catholic School before the Supreme Court. Will also represents Catholic Social Services before the Supreme Court. For our spring 2020 issue, Will wrote a fascinating essay titled Religious Liberty and the Common Good. In his piece, Will argues that American society has lost sight of the true meaning and purpose of the First Amendment's Free Exercise Clause. Will argues that a return to the founders' understanding of the First Amendment, alongside a recovery of the substantive arguments that informed their understanding, points the way toward a more persuasive and robust case for the defense of religious liberty. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I want to start off, we're actually going to read a few sentences from your piece uh, to start off here. So you write, quote, legal and cultural debates involving religious liberty are converging toward a single question, whether free religious exercise is part of the common good or what might now be called society's overall well-being. While Americans have long debated how religious exercise should manifest in the public square, the need for a common good shaped by religious practice went unquestioned. But this has changed over the last generation, end quote. So, well, before we kind of talk about how uh, religious liberty has changed at the, at the courts and at the Supreme Court, I want to talk about a little bit about these cultural changes you talk about in this quote. Why has Americans' perceptions of religious liberty and how it relates to the common good, why have those changed, you think, in kind of the last one or two generations? I think there are a number of reasons. I think there has been, as I say in the essay, a growing antipathy toward religion in public life, specifically organized corporate religion in the sense of corporate meaning an organized body, a congregation, or having an institutional presence in society that suggests a vision of the good life that is in any way different from secular understandings of what's good. I think also there's been greater emphasis that has been placed upon self-expression as opposed to simply seeking the truth objectively understood mm -hmm. as if the truth is something that can be objectively realized by all people right. and sought and debated as opposed to something that's private and personal to you. Religion is personal, but it is never private. And so I think that kind of explains some of the disconnect. Those are some of the, the bigger cultural trends that I would point to. And in your piece, you argue that the shift was ultimately reflected in the American legal system through the Supreme Court's decision in the 1990 case, Employment Division v. Smith. Could you give us a little background on that case and tell us why you ultimately found the court's decision there unsatisfying? Sure. Employment Division versus Smith is a case that involved the criminal prohibition on a drug called peyote, which is used in, Native in certain Native American sacramental rituals. There was not a criminal prosecution in the case. Rather, the case itself dealt with two individuals who had been denied unemployment benefits because of their use of peyote in the state of Oregon. And when the case, the case has a kind of complicated procedural history, but ultimately, when the case reached the Supreme Court in the 1990 decision, the Supreme Court took the case as an opportunity not simply to apply what had been standard free exercise analysis up to that point and asked, well, is there a compelling reason why 
the government is prohibiting this particular use of this particular substance? And is there any other way that the government can achieve that reason without burdening these two religious individuals? Mm -hmm. Instead of asking those kinds of questions, the court really departed from the arguments in the case. She wasn't even briefed, departed from the facts of the case. As I said, there wasn't a criminal prosecution at issue and just said, we have never held that the Supreme Court authorizes a right of exemption from what it called neutral and generally applicable laws. Mm. And to reach that result, the court had to, and this is something that's acknowledged even by those who like the result in Smith, the court had to recharacterize the entire 20th century of free exercise case law, because Mm. that just simply wasn't what the law was up to that point. And in the course of doing so, it made a number of representations that I think are at odds with a longstanding laudable tradition of religious accommodation in our country. It referred to religious accommodations as a luxury, as something that are dangerous, especially in a society that has a diversity of religious beliefs, and in fact would be courting anarchy and would render individuals' laws unto themselves and would be horrible if judges were involved in in authorizing them. And as a sort of parting paragraph at the end of the decision, the court concedes, we understand that the rule we're setting forth is going to place at a relative disadvantage those who engage in religious practices that are not popular or not widely engaged in. But, and this is from the opinion, that must be preferred be to a society where judges are authorizing religious accommodation. I think that gets our best traditions wrong. I think that it gets the original meaning of the free exercise clause wrong. And I think it is not in line with either the precedent of the court up to that point and certainly not in line with where free exercise and religious liberty case law more generally has gone since 1990. And you mentioned there kind of our traditions of religion and American society. I wanted to read a quote, another quote from your piece. Quote, diluting religious exercise poses a problem for political liberalism because self-government presupposes certain moral virtues that religion cultivates and liberalism does not. I thought that was a really interesting quote. Could you talk a little bit about what you're saying there and how that relates to how American society um, traditionally has viewed religion, but then how that changed, as you mentioned, with the Smith case? So I think religion's connection to self-government is perhaps best alluded to by St. Augustine when he said quite succinctly, what we seek is not here. I have a line like that from C.S. Lewis in the piece where he talks about how if I have these desires in my heart that no one can satisfy, it must mean that I was made for another world. Self-government, which is to say a society where we are free to govern ourselves rather than have the state completely control our destinies, became probable in the West as a historical matter, largely because religion removed from the political order any pretense that government's proper role is to fulfill our highest ends our, or give license to our basest instincts. Religion saves politics from itself because it prevents politics from thinking it's an engine of salvation. And that ultimately results in an inherent, in an inherent limit on government power. And an important one in a society like ours that is partially based on a commitment to certain abstract ideals. And I think it's a limit, as I explained in the essay, from which other limits on government power follow. I also think that by keeping government and politics proper role in perspective, religion also ensures that politics ensures that individual Americans are free to pursue the truth according to their own conscience, even if 
the truth that is being pursued isn't popular with the majority at the time. There's a great quote from Martin Luther King Jr. in Letter from the Birmingham Jail that I think sums this up nicely when he's discussing the early Christian church, which often suffered and were martyred for their beliefs, that they acted not merely as a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion, but as a thermostat that could transform the mores of society. And so I think the American experience always viewed diversity of religious belief and the proper ordering of first comes God, then comes government, the shaping of political obligations in light of religious duties as a proper ordering to both keep the state in check, to allow individuals space to pursue the truth, and also to challenge the zeitgeist with transcendent moral visions of the good, regardless of their popularity. I think all of that helps preserve freedom. So a religious society sort of tempers the utopian impulse that might lead to a kind of totalitarianism and stands at odds with the goal of self-governance and free society. Absolutely. And I think, you know, speaking as a millennial, I see, and and that's not, by the way, that is not normally a way I would start a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, But speaking as a millennial, I do think that when you look at the level of kind of depression and angst among younger Americans and the desire to see the state kind of fulfill or make amends for suffering and difficulty in life that they view as illegitimate, I think you're seeing that danger play out in real time. When everything is declared achievable in society, when, you, when we think that there should be no barriers between you and anything that you can possibly imagine or desire, then any kind of suffering that exists in the world is illegitimate. Any kind of limits that exist in the world is illegitimate. It's either your own fault or the fault of someone else that government should be empowered to remove that results in there being no such thing as a transcendent being that would set standards for us for which it's okay to endure suffering or benefit from limits. There's no transcendent being that would love you and take an interest in you and might even save you despite suffering and flaws and shortcomings. There's no transcendent being that would be in control all the time because you must be in control all the time. I think that that kind of mentality could, re, could really breed ideologies that would ultimately undermine freedom, and in addition to just breed rampant unhappiness. And interestingly, you trace that argument to the founding generation through the words of James Madison in his famous Memorial and Remonstrance. Madison wrote, it is the duty of every man to render to the creator such homage and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. This duty is precedent both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. And you see in that argument, an argument very similar to the one you just made, namely that in separating between the church and the state, Madison is not saying that the church becomes subservient to the state, but rather the state and man's obligations to the state become subservient to man's obligations as an individual to God and to the church. So can you walk us through I mean, is that a correct reading of, of Madison here? And can you walk us through how that interpretation differs from the ruling in Smith? I think it is generally a correct interpretation of what is said in the Memorial and Remonstrance. I think the Memorial and Remonstrance, and Professor Michael McConnell has pointed this out in his landmark essay, which describes the origins and original understanding of the free exercise of religion as sort of representing popular American views about free exercise at the time of the founding. And I think what it demonstrates is that 
religious liberty, as I say in the essay, is sort of different in kind from other individual rights. It's not exercise in service to an individual, but to a universal sovereign that's beyond the individual, beyond the state. It's not a right that's exercised for necessarily self-fulfillment or autonomy or self-expression. Other natural rights that came out of, I think, a recognition of rights of conscience may tend toward those goals, but they always possessed corresponding duties. With religious liberty, though, as described there, the distinct sovereignty that religious exercise is serving makes exercising the right itself a duty. So as Madison says in the Memorial and Remonstrance, we call this a right towards men here in political life, but it's a duty toward the creator in the divine life. And so it's a recognition that political authority is not the only kind of authority on earth. There is another sphere of authority of obligations mm -hmm. to the divine from which political society follows. And I, I think, you know, you can trace this. This has roots in a lot of different kind of thought. And that's why I tried to survey a number of different sort of theorists in the piece in, in explaining this. And the founding generation itself, I think, was an amalgamation of a lot of different kinds of, of thought channeling this. But yes, the goal was there to pursue what Barry Shane has articulated, and I quote in the piece, as spiritual liberty. In other words, the ability to kind of set one's own goals and self aside and, and live life as God commands. And that didn't necessarily accord with whatever you personally desired or a community's, you know, sense of the good life, but what God commanded. And that has deep roots that predate the founding, as he articulates. So there's a metaphysical and sort of universal moral claim being made there. But is it also the case that Madison understood in making that argument that one of the benefits of that understanding would also be political, namely the sort of like anti-utopianism that you were just talking about? Yes, I, I certainly think so. And that was why I kind of had a discussion of Madison along with Burke in this part of the essay, because I think, you know, Burke is interesting to bring into this discussion for a number of reasons. But I think in relation to, to Madison, I think that you see an agreement that religion is and, and guaranteeing the free exercise of religion. Remember, the First Amendment says no law abridging the free exercise of religion. It's not like other parts of the Bill of Rights that say, you know, unreasonable searches and seizures aren't allowed or excessive fines aren't allowed. Or, no, no law abridging the free exercise of religion is a recognition of an authority that's higher than the state and is central to constraining government power. Now, Burke in England saw that as done through an established church. And obviously, Madison was not in favor of that. But instead, I think what we see in the American experience is the, the individual conscience as sort of playing that same kind of restraining role, that it's my obligation to form my conscience in accordance with the divine commands, and then live out my life consistent with those duties. And that allows for not only an inherent limit on the power of government, it can't interfere with the sovereignty of the soul. But on the same token, it also helps the effect of shaping political society to try to conform itself to transcendent truths. And of course, people have different ideas about that. And that's why we allow for a robust space in public life to debate, discuss, and interact with those duties so we can try to reach the objective truth together. 
And Will, you eloquently laid out Madison's view of religious liberty in the memorial remonstrance, but obviously that has, has changed a lot. If you think about that, what it looks like today, it's very different today. It's very much that religion is kind of, a, as you said, a private thing and more about your individual identity, but there shouldn't be any public expression of that. Could you kind of walk us through what are some of the trends that change Madison's view from what, where we are today, which seems to be quite different? Yes. Well, as I say in the essay, you know, this was always going to be something difficult to preserve. Part of it was because the founders were primarily focused, I think, on the institutional arrangement of power as preserving liberty. And this is why in sort of the second half of, or the second piece of the essay, second segment, I talk about Tocqueville at some length as sort of saying, look, this is not simply about the institutional arrangement of power, but actually there's a substantive commitment to religion's role here that's necessary. The founders recognize this, but I think, I think the focus was on the institutional arrangement. So that's one reason why it's difficult is that we, we kind of have to, every generation has to kind of figure this out for themselves. But I think another reason why it's difficult is that, <laughs> at the risk of being circular, it's just difficult. I mean, this is, a, the, the, you know, you are asking a Democrat, and this is why I kind of get into Tocqueville at some length, like, mm. you're, you're asking a democratic society where the popular understanding of that is majority rules. You're asking them to accept constraints on their appetites. You're asking them to say, as my now she's turned six years old today, said apparently at kindergarten, <laughs> to say you can't just do whatever you want. <laughs> just, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's, that made me very proud when she said that, but that is the truth. I mean, like you are, you are essentially asking a society to restrain its passions. I mean, passion was a word that the founders used with a certain understanding in mind as sort of being divorced from reason and, and not consistent with natural law. But the word itself is not necessarily meant to be meaning a bad thing, but just something that you desire very dearly and perhaps for, for laudable reasons. But it's a recognition that you have to restrain that in, in living in community with others. And that's just difficult. I mean, it's just hard, especially when, I mean, we always had a diverse, and Smith kind of gets to this when it says that religious accommodation is dangerous in a society that increases its religious diversity. We've always had religious diversity in our society. I think it's a given of American life back to the founding. We had really an unrivaled experience with religious diversity. And the, if you look at the ratifying conventions regarding the free exercise clause, there's some discussion about an acknowledgement that there would be more diversity to come. And certainly that's borne out. But obviously, as you know, we see even today, there's been always a level of discomfort with having too many different transcendent visions of the good in public life. It asks us to accept a little more humility than perhaps we would prefer. I'd like to read out a quote from your essay that I thought really wonderfully captured the sort of modern view that sees a problem in religious liberty. So you wrote, many progressives today view any religious exercise beyond individualized expression, like wearing a hijab, growing a beard, or what one does, as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi put it, on Sunday in church, as potentially threatening dignitary harms. The source of dignity, according to this view, reflects an ideological commitment to equality of sameness. Religious expression that reflects one's personal identity could, perhaps, not violate this abstract commitment to equality, and it might even help further ideological goals. In either case, it would be acceptable. But any broader, more institutionally manifested religious exercise, one that attempts to shape any part of the public square or present an alternative moral vision to equality of sameness, is unacceptable. 
And I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about some of the intellectual antecedents to that kind of view. I know Rousseau and John Locke came up to some extent in the essay that might not be exactly what they were getting at, but I was wondering if we could talk about some of the other voices in the founding era and the Enlightenment in general that understood religious liberty in the way that Speaker Nancy Pelosi might. I'm not certain that you could draw a direct line from any particular person in the founding to any particular person in the American left today. I think like all other kinds of theories of liberalism, which I use to describe an open society and not necessarily progressive ideology. Like, I think there's just been a lot of, you know, combinations, a, lot, a lot's been added to the mix over, over the years. But I think, you know, if you were to look at like a, a Thomas Jefferson or a Thomas Paine, I think what they would demonstrate, and I, I quote Jefferson in the essay as being kind of agnostic about religious toleration, the idea of, well, look, if you want to believe that there are 20 gods or no God, doesn't pick my pocket, doesn't break my leg, so I don't really care. A sort of indifference to what religion represents and what it can do in free society. There was some concern that some members of the founding generation had, like Jefferson, like Paine, and Locke had some of this too, although not, not as much as others, that religious diversity and different religious points of view would ultimately undermine society because they would threaten the fact that the state should ultimately be the one who gets to define civil interests, who gets to define what's good that the community pursues. I quote Rousseau about that being a clearly bad idea to entertain the idea of a sovereign that's not you know, subject to the general will. But I think the, the idea there is that there are going to be competing claims regarding the good life and that some people embraced religious toleration. And I use that word there intentionally, toleration, because they tolerated it as sort of like, look, it's a fact of life that we have these people who have diverse religious views. We're not going to be able to change it. But if we really embrace toleration on a widespread scale, maybe they'll all just die off because we won't be saying that there's anything special about religion. We won't be saying that it does anything unique or is helpful to preserving freedom. It's just going to be one voice among many, and it will ultimately just fade into obscurity. And by contrast, I think what Madison was saying in the Memorial and Remonstrance, and he makes this clear in an 1819 letter to Robert Walsh, when he talks about how actually religious diversity and different conceptions of the good life, it allows religion to be free to flourish. That's Madison's word, to flourish. That it will actually enhance the purity and the zeal with which religion is discussed and pursued. That it, by separating it from political power, it would remove some of the potentially corrupting effects of religion, but it would allow it to have a more authentic witness that would challenge the public to higher understandings of the good life. Kind of like what, what I mentioned with the Martin Luther King quote. And the Supreme Court has, has recognized this in, in, in certain ways as well. There's a, a case called Wisconsin versus Yoder from the early 1970s that dealt with Amish communities who could not have their children be sent to high school, secondary education, because it would ultimately undermine the Amish way of life. And the court kind of goes on to say, you know, we think 
meaning modern American society. We think that we have come up with the ideal way to educate children, that of course you need compulsory secondary education to be a functioning adult in modern society. But we need to acknowledge that religious institutions have preserved important civilizational values and demonstrate ways of living that could work very well, even if they're not popular right now. We need to, as the court says, resist the hydraulic insistence to conform to majoritarian standards. There can be no assumption that today's majority is right and the views of the religious group are wrong. Justices Alito and Kagan made a similar observation in a concurring opinion in a case called Hosanna Tabor, where talk about how it's important to remember that religious institutions have often served as a shield against certain civil laws. That recognition that the American tradition is really supposed to be one of religious individuals and institutions providing a distinct moral witness in the public square. I think that's one of the best aspects of our tradition and helps us achieve a better, richer, more authentically good public square. Well, you mentioned some Supreme Court cases there. Uh, We wanted to also kind of, as we start to wrap up here, talk about some of the recent cases. This was obviously a busy term. The Begafone was heavily involved as well. You know, we had Little Sisters of the Poor, where the court kind of upheld the exemption from the ACA's contraception mandate. We had Our Lady of Guadalupe School upholding the ministerial exception for religious teachers at religious schools. Also, Espinoza, which kind of allowed religious schools to receive public benefits and not be denied those just because they were religious schools. Could you talk a little bit about those cases? And and after this term, where do you think religious liberty is right now, given, again, our traditions all the way back to the founding and then kind of the new understanding that has emerged recently? Sure. I think in all of those cases, along with another one, a third one, Espinoza, in all of them, I think what you're seeing is the court affirming the right of religious groups to participate in public life while upholding their beliefs. I think this is a good thing, and I think it demonstrates the kind of accommodation, the kind of live and let live accommodation that is possible in a society with a diversity of religious beliefs. And I think the court has an opportunity to continue building on that this fall when it will hear argument in another Beckett case, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, that will address whether Philadelphia can shut down Catholic Social Services foster care ministry because the agency, consistent with Catholic beliefs, cannot provide written endorsements of same-sex marriages. If the agency was ever asked, it's never been asked, the dispute's entirely hypothetical. If it was ever asked, the agency would refer a same-sex couple to one of 29 other agencies, including several with expertise in serving LGBTQ families. But for Philadelphia, that's just not enough. And so I think that that case also provides another opportunity for the court to affirm the right of religious groups to serve the public square with integrity and to provide that kind of vision to public life, even if it doesn't accord with the zeitgeist. Wanted to ask about Espinoza specifically. I think like a lot of conservatives, I celebrated the Espinoza decision. And like a lot of conservatives, I think I could read your essay and and Madison's words in the memorial and remonstrance and be pretty moved by that account of religious liberty, that defense of religious liberty. But it was also striking to me, preparing for this conversation with you today, to take note of the fact that the memorial and remonstrance was written as a speech by Madison or a pamphlet, an essay by Madison in opposition to the funding of religious schools through taxpayer dollars. So I was wondering if you could square Madison's argument and intent there with that outcome. Well, I think as the court says in Espinoza, there is a complex 
tradition on the funding of religious schools. And it's something that I think not even Madison himself, frankly, was consistent on (laughs) over time. But I think, you know, the key point there in the discussion of historical traditions is that there was no long and historical tradition opposing allowing equal access to government programs on the basis of religion. And Madison was more concerned, I think, in the Memorial and Remonstrance and elsewhere about using religion as an engine of civil policy. This, however, is about whether or not religious schools can participate in public programs on equal footing with non-religious schools. And the court, I think, was very clear about that in distinguishing cases involving, say, the funding of clergy, for example, where there's a more distinct kind of government subsidization of religious activity at issue. So it's a complicated history, but I think there is a distinction to be drawn between preserving you know, non-discrimination against religion versus employing religion as an engine of civil policy. And well, I wanted to ask you too, in Bostock, obviously some conservatives were concerned about that and, and worried that it could lead to more cases against religious institutions, such as Catholic hospitals, for example, in the future. What are your thoughts about that decision, juxtaposed with the other ones we were just talking about that were kind of more favorable to our religious institutions? Well, the court's ruling there allows workers to sue secular organizations for what it considers to be discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. But the court left open rather explicitly and directly the question of whether similar suits could succeed against religious employers. And in fact, the court repeatedly emphasized its concern with preserving the promise of the free exercise of religion in the Constitution. It reiterated that this is a guarantee that lies at the heart of a pluralistic society. And I think, you know, that reference to a pluralistic society is important because that demonstrates that there can be and will be different visions of the good life in the public square. And for religious people and religious institutions, they can exercise their religious liberty to witness to the good life, to the truth as they see it. And that's a good thing. And that not only allows them to serve the public square consistent with their own beliefs, but also allows them to inform the conversation about what the good life is. You know, I think if you look back to, again, I mentioned Martin Luther King at the beginning, discussing the early Christian church in the pagan world. These were small communities, a dozen people here, two dozen or so there. They were pockets in a larger cultural context in which their views were not just unpopular, but they were thought of as just outright strange. Resurrection of the dead, strange. Like like the roles for women and being apostles to other apostles, that was bizarre. Or human dignity, even in slaves, not retreating to country houses to avoid infection when a plague is struck, but staying to nurse the poor, even at the risk of your own life. But that witness, that space over time, provided a witness to the public square that allowed the zeitgeist to think through what was considered popular. I think that's always been the role that religious liberty has played, and it's good to see the court reaffirming that pluralistic role that religious liberty can play. Then as we look forward to Fulton and the upcoming term, you represent Catholic social services. Are you involved in in that case in particular? I am, yes. Okay, great. So I'm, I'm asking the right person. So I know Smith, people are suggesting that Smith will come up. Is, is Smith specifically being challenged? And 
I guess there's sort of a two-pronged question there. What, what outcome are you guys hoping for and what outcome are you guys expecting? Well, Smith is certainly one of the questions that the court has agreed to review. The second question presented that we teed up for the court was whether Employment Division versus Smith should be revisited, and they granted the court granted review on that question. So they will review Smith. We hope to win, and <laughs> I, and and I, and I think in our in our brief, and I, I would encourage people to look at the brief we filed for more on this with regard to Smith. You know, it's interesting. This case, I think, to distill it, the city of Philadelphia is asking a religious agency, an arm of a church, to speak and to act despite its religious beliefs. Not even Smith allows that. But the fact that the lower court in this case, the Third Circuit, said that Smith would be a, quote, dead letter, close quote, if it didn't apply to this case suggests the problems that Smith has wrought in free exercise jurisprudence, that, that you would think that Smith would even allow a government to demand a religious agency to say, please, speak and act despite what you believe. I'm asking for your opinion about something, but please, when you give it to me, don't consult or keep in mind your religious beliefs. That is astonishing. And I think we go through it at some length in our brief, explaining how Smith is inconsistent with the text, the history, and the structure of the Constitution, that all of its predictions about the kind of society that would follow Smith have been proved incorrect, and that also that even if the Smith rule applies to this case, there's simply no way that you can say that that kind of demand from government is both neutral and generally applicable toward religion. So would a victory mean a return to the sort of pre-Smith litmus tests that the court was using? Is that the goal? Well, as we say in our briefing, you know, historical considerations should inform the interpretation of the free exercise clause as it now informs the establishment clause. I think we've seen a trend in the Supreme Court's religion clause jurisprudence more generally in recent years to rely on the history and tradition of the religion clauses, as opposed to embracing what the court has derided in recent religion clause cases as either grand unified theories or rigid formulas, and instead look at the history and tradition underlying the two clauses. That's happened in the establishment clause context in recent cases, and that is something that the court could do with the free exercise clause in this case. And like I said, if that does happen, just as a historical matter, there's simply no way that you could say the government could ask an arm of a church, or not ask, demand, an arm in a church speak and act despite its religious beliefs. Religious liberty is necessary for religious exercise. If you want to bring a different vision of the good life to challenge the zeitgeist in the public square, you need the space to do so. And that space is guaranteed by religious liberty. I think it's a good place to end it there, Will. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's a really fascinating conversation. Thanks so much again, Will, for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. If you'd like to read Will's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcasts by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.